One of the only things that is likely to change your behavior is to make incremental progress. You really don't want to make dinner? Make something simple for your family to snack on while you cook dinner later. You're having trouble writing that big speech for next month's conference? Just write the keynote to the speech now. You're overwhelmed by the amount of reading you need to do for your economics class? Set a goal for yourself of reading the first chapter. Like the wise counselor, you must take it one step at a time. One day at a time. What you'll notice in all of these scenarios is two things. One is that they present you with something achievable, a win on the way to reaching the championship of getting this job done. The other is that they all put you in a situation where you're likely to get even more accomplished. Already in the kitchen now, so you might as well finish making dinner. You've gotten through the keynote and you're on a roll, so maybe it makes sense to draft some more pages. The first chapter of your economics text wasn't nearly as dry as it seemed from the outside and you already have the book open, you can handle a few more chapters. By breaking a task that you're procrastinating about into smaller pieces, the path to getting it done becomes clear. The best way to deal with the tension between what you want and what you've done so far to achieve it is to remember what the Zygarnik effect teaches us. You're not going to be able to ease your mind about the task until you complete it. So get yourself moving towards completion. Start somewhere, anywhere, even if you don't have the energy or motivation to get the entire thing done, get started on getting it done. You'll be thankful for the relief. Quick start. Think about an important task you've been putting off. What is it? How can you break it down into small, simple steps that you can do each day? On autopilot. Small, simple steps repeated lead to habits. Our habits are a core part of who we are. Various studies have shown that somewhere between 40 and 50% of what we do every day is the product of a habit. That means that half our lives are governed by what scientists term automaticity. This percentage might sound high to you. It certainly did for me the first time I heard it. But consider how many things you do every day without really thinking about them. You brush your teeth without thinking about it. You check your phone at predictable intervals. You drive to the office and you don't particularly recall how you got there. You zip up your jacket, you get a glass out of the cupboard, and click on the TV remote automatically. This, of course, is essential to how we conduct our lives. Can you imagine how overwhelming it would be if you had to think about every single thing you did? If even brushing your teeth required some conscious level of calculation, you'd be exhausted by 10 in the morning. Without habit loops, our brains would shut down, overwhelmed by the minutia of daily life, writes Charles Duhigg in his best-selling book, The Power of Habit. People whose basal ganglia are damaged by injury or disease often become mentally paralyzed. They have trouble performing basic activities, such as opening a door or deciding what to eat. They lose the ability to ignore insignificant details. One study, for example, found that patients with basal ganglia injuries couldn't recognize facial expressions, including fear and disgust, because they were perpetually uncertain about which part of the face to focus on. James Clear, author of the best-selling book Atomic Habits, says, The habits you repeat or don't repeat every day largely determine your health, wealth, and happiness. Knowing how to change your habits mean knowing how to confidently own and manage your days, focus on the behaviors that have the highest impact, and reverse engineer the life you want. All habits serve you in some way, Clear told me. As you go through life, you face a variety of problems. You need to tie your shoe, 
Your brain is automating the solution to that problem. That's what a habit is. It's the solution to a reoccurring problem that you face throughout life, one you've employed so many times that you can do it without thinking. If the solution doesn't work anymore, then your brain will update it. Clear identifies the habit loop as having four components, a cue, a craving, a response, and a reward. Using the example of turning on a light when you enter a room, the cue is walking into the room and finding it dark. The craving is the feeling that there would be some value in the room not being dark. The response is flipping on the light switch. And the reward is that the room is no longer dark. You could apply this loop to any of your habits, such as getting your mail when you come home from work. The cue is reaching your driveway or front door at the end of the day. The craving is hoping there's something in the mailbox. The response is going to the mailbox to find out. The reward is getting the mail out of your mailbox. You probably didn't think about any of this until you actually had the mail in your hands. Creating habits to automate essential parts of our lives is a fundamental streamlining technique that we do largely unconsciously, often to our benefit. Of course, we also automate all kinds of things that we'd probably be better off not turning into habits. I'm sure you know some version of this. Perhaps a cue is walking past your kitchen pantry. The craving comes from the knowledge that your favorite chips are in the pantry and your innate desire to eat them. The response is that you go into the pantry, open the bag of chips, and take out a big handful. And the reward is crunchy, salty, fatty deliciousness. That doesn't benefit your health in any way. Our negative habits operate with the same level of automaticity as our healthy ones. Those chips are in your stomach before you've even had the opportunity to register that you are stuffing them in your mouth. Now, because you're in the process of becoming limitless, you know that perpetuating negative behaviors is a drain on your superpowers. So, how do you break bad habits? And, just importantly, how do you create new habits that will help you? Getting in the habit. Before we get into this, let's talk for a moment about how long it takes to form a habit. In a study for University College London, Participants went through the process of developing a new healthy eating, drinking, or exercise habit, such as drinking water with lunch or jogging before dinner. They were asked to perform this new behavior based on specific situational cues every day for 84 days. For the majority of the participants, they wrote, Automaticity increased steadily over the days of the study supporting the assumption that repeating a behavior in a consistent setting increases automaticity. By the end of the study, they found that it took an average of 66 days for the new behavior to become a habit, though it took individual participants as little as 18 days and as many as 254 days. It is also widely assumed that breaking a habit isn't about ending that habit, but rather about replacing it with a different, more constructive habit. Dr. Elliot Berkman, director of the Social and Effective Neuroscience Laboratory at the University of Oregon, notes, it is much easier to start doing something new than to stop doing something habitual without a replacement behavior. That's one reason why smoking cessation aids such as nicotine gum or inhalers tend to be more effective than the nicotine patch. So, if the process of starting a new habit such as setting aside time to read every day is fundamentally the same as the process for ending a negative habit such as grabbing those chips every time you pass the pantry, how does it work? As with so many of the things we've discussed in this book, motivation plays a key role. Speaking specifically about the effort to break habits, Dr. Thomas G. Plant, 
adjunct clinical professor of the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at Stanford University School of Medicine said, it depends how much you really want to break the habit. Many people are ambivalent. They want to lose weight, but they like the foods they eat. They want to reduce their alcohol consumption, but love their happy hour. They want to stop picking their nails, but it reduces stress for them. So one important issue is how strongly you really want to break the habit in question. Second, how established is the problem habit? It is easier to break a new habit than an old one. Third, what are the consequences of not breaking the habit? Will a partner leave you? Will you lose a job? Will you get sick? Will something really bad happen if you don't change? Dr. B.J. Fogg created the Fogg Behavior Model to identify the circumstances that need to be present for behavior change to occur. For a target behavior to happen, he notes, a person must have sufficient motivation, sufficient ability, and an effective prompt. All three factors must be present at the same instant for the behavior to occur. In other words, you need three things in place in order to develop a habit. You need the desire to do it, since it's exceedingly difficult to make habitual anything you really don't want to do. You need the skills to do it, since it's nearly impossible to make a habit out of anything you don't have the capacity to accomplish. And you need something to get the habit loop started, what James Clear and others refer to as the cue. Let's look at each element in turn. Motivation. We've talked about motivation already, but it's worth revisiting the subject here to see it from Fogg's perspective. Fogg identifies three key motivators. Number one, pleasure-pain. This is the most immediate motivator. In this case, the behavior has a nearly immediate payoff, positive or negative. I believe pleasure-pain is a primitive response, says Fogg, and it functions adaptively in hunger, sex, and other activities related to self-preservation and propagation of our genes. Number two, hope, fear. Unlike the immediacy of the previous motivator, this one is all about anticipation. When you're hopeful, you're anticipating something good happening. When you're fearful, you're anticipating the opposite. This dimension is at times more powerful than pleasure-pain, as it is evidenced in everyday behavior, Fogg notes. For example, in some situations, people will accept pain a flu shot, in order to overcome fear, anticipation of getting the flu. Number three, social acceptance, rejection. Humans have always desired to be accepted by their peers, dating back to the time when being ostracized could mean a death sentence, and this remains an extremely strong motivator. The power of social motivation is likely hardwired into us and perhaps all other creatures that historically depended on living in groups to survive. Ability. Fogg equates ability with simplicity, noting that when something is simple for us, we are considerably more likely to do it. He defines six categories of simplicity. Number one, time. We only perceive something to be simple if we have the time available to perform the function. Number two, money. Similarly, if something stretches our financial resources, we do not consider it simple. Number three, physical effort. We consider things that are physically easy for us to be simple. Number four, brain cycles. Simple things don't tax our thinking, and we shy away from things that require us to think too hard. Number five, social deviance. This goes back 
to the acceptance motivation. A simple act fits into societal norms. Number six, non-routine. How far something is out of one's normal routine will define its level of simplicity. These six categories of simplicity are why small, simple steps are so important in the motivation model. Prompts. Finally, Fogg notes three types of prompts. One, spark. A spark is a type of prompt that immediately leads to a form of motivation. For example, if opening your email leads to a level of fear over what you might find there, you're likely to adopt a habit that will change that fear. Two, facilitator. This type of prompt works when motivation is high, but ability is low. For example, if you want to use a certain kind of software on your computer, but are tech adverse, a tool that makes that software easier for you to use is likely to cause you to adopt this behavior. Three, signal. In some cases, you'll have both high motivation and high ability. The only other thing you need to make a behavior a habit is some kind of reminder or signal. If you love making brain smoothies, all you need is to walk into your kitchen in the morning and see the blender to prompt you to make one. Quick start. Can you identify the habits you want to break? What is that one habit that's holding you back from doing other important things in your day? Write it down, then identify the prompts that trigger you to perform that habit. Creating a new habit. The FOG behavior model shows us everything that needs to be in place for a particular behavior to become a habit. We know that making habits of behaviors we consider good for us are important to our growth. And we also know that the key to breaking bad habits is to replace them with more constructive ones. But how do you make something a habit? Just remember, win. W is for want. Make sure you really want it. It's nearly impossible to turn something into a habit if you don't want to do that thing. Do one of the motivators in the FOG model apply to the habit you're trying to adopt? If not, is there something close to this habit that might accomplish something similar for you? I is for innate. Does the new habit you're trying to adopt align well with your innate abilities? Remember that you're unlikely to make something a habit when it is consistently difficult for you to perform. If the habit you're trying to adopt is something that you're good at or you know you can be good at, you're well on your way. N is for now. Create a prompt for yourself that encourages you to perform the new habit now. This can be anything from a reminder on your phone to placing something in your office that makes you remember to set aside time to do what you're setting out to do. Growing your life one habit at a time. In case you're still wondering how much of an effect establishing good habits can have on your life, let me share a story about one of our clients. Zhang suffered from schizophrenia and depression. He often heard voices telling him to hurt himself or others, and he endured several stints in psychiatric wards because of this. After finding the right medication and emerging from his latest round of treatment, he discovered my podcast and learned some of the tactics that I teach in my school. He started listening on a regular basis and participated in the Quick Challenge, a series of exercises I take people through to introduce novelty to their thinking and therefore keep their brains tuned for learning. At first, this was hard for Zheng, but he focused on doing just two particular challenges, brushing his teeth with the opposite hand and taking a cold shower every morning. 
He increased his time under the cold water by one minute each week, and in doing so, discovered that being able to do something hard, like standing under freezing cold water for several minutes each morning, made him realize that there were areas in his life in which he was fighting for his limitations. Building from these quick challenge experiences, he started applying what he was learning about habits and behavior change to other areas. Zhang's life improved dramatically. He took his driver's license test and passed. He changed his diet, cut out sugary drinks, and started taking a five-minute jog in the park every morning. He started reading books, the first being Mindset by Carol Dweck, and as he read, he listened to Baroque music to pace his reading and distract himself from hallucinations. It took him a month to finish the book, but when he did, he felt a sense of confidence he never had before. Trips to the library became a regular thing. Zhang has even taken his learning to the next level and enrolled in computer science classes at a local college. And the best part is that he now believes he is a lifelong learner. You may think that because of all your past failed attempts to change your habits and routines, you're doomed to failure forever. Zhang's story shows that by changing just one or two small habits in your day, incredible progress can follow. Something as simple as brushing your teeth with the opposite hand can be the start to an entirely new way of life. Establishing a morning routine. Why is your morning routine so important? I strongly believe that if you jumpstart your day by jumpstarting your brain with a series of simple activities, you have a huge advantage. In addition, if you set up winning routines early in the day, you can benefit from what Tony Robbins calls the science of momentum, the notion that once you set accomplishment in motion, you can keep it in motion with much less effort than if you were trying to accomplish something from a standing start. I have a carefully developed morning routine to help me win the day that involves priming my mind. I don't do every single one of these things every day, especially when I'm traveling, but I always do most of them, and I know for certain that it gets me mentally prepared and poised for performance, productivity, and positivity from the minute I get up. Let me walk you through a typical morning. Before I get out of bed, I spend some time reflecting on my dreams. Dreams are an expression of the work your subconscious is doing while you're sleeping, and there's gold to be mined with them. Many geniuses throughout history have regularly accessed and often gleaned their best ideas and made their greatest discoveries from their dreams. Mary Shelley came up with the idea for Frankenstein in her dreams. A dream was the source of Paul McCartney's Yesterday and Einstein's theory of relativity. So the first thing I do every morning, even before lifting my head from the pillow, is think back on my dreams to see if there's an idea or a perception or a new way of looking at something that can be useful to what I'm trying to accomplish. I know that some of you have trouble recalling your dreams, so I'm going to provide you with a quick mnemonic technique designed to help you do so. Just think of the word dreams. D is for decide. The night before, make a conscious decision that you're going to recall your dreams. If you set the intention, your chances improve dramatically. R is for record. Keep a pen and paper by your bedside, or even have a recording app readily available on your phone. As soon as you wake up, record any lingering remembrance of your dreams. E is for eyes. Keep your eyes closed right after you awaken. 
Dreams can disappear within minutes, and if you keep your eyes closed, this will help you reflect. A is for affirm. Before you go to sleep, affirm that you are going to remember your dreams because affirmation is a critical tool in accomplishment. M is for manage. For lots of reasons, but specifically here, for the sake of remembering your dreams, it is important to manage your sleep and establish good sleep routines. S is for share. Talk about your dreams with others. When you do so, you bring them more and more to the surface, and you develop the routine of tapping into your dreams so you can discuss them later. The first thing I do after I get out of bed is make the bed. This is a success habit, my first accomplishment of the day. It's an easy win, and it has the added advantage of making my bedtime more pleasant because it's always nicer to return that night to a bed that is made. It's why in the military they train you to make your bed first thing in the morning because it sets you up to be excellent at everything you do. How you do anything is how you do everything. After that, I have a tall glass of water. Hydration is so important first thing in the morning because our bodies lose a lot of water while we sleep through the simple act of breathing, respiration, perspiration. Remember, our brains are approximately 75-80% water. So if we're going to fire up our brains, we need to be well hydrated. I also sometimes have a glass of celery juice, which boosts the immune system, helps flush toxins from the liver, and helps restore the adrenal glands. Hat tip to Anthony William, the medical medium, for this idea. Right after this, I take my probiotics to make sure my second brain is getting what it needs. Then I brush my teeth with my opposite hand. I do this to train my brain to do difficult things because it stimulates a different part of your brain and because it forces and trains me to be present. I can't be doing other things in order to do this well. Then I do a three-minute workout. This is not my full workout for the day, but I want to get my heart rate up first thing in the morning as it helps with sleep and weight management and with oxygenation to the brain. Once I finish with that, I take a cold shower. I'm sure some of you will cringe at the idea of starting the day pummeling yourself with cold water, but cold therapies of this type do a great job of resetting the nervous system and have the added benefit of helping manage inflammation. When I'm out of the shower, I go through a series of breathing exercises to fully oxygenate my body. Then I do about 20 minutes of meditation to give me a clear mind as I enter the day. The process I use, Ziva Meditation, was developed by my meditation coach, Emily Fletcher, a three-step process that involves mindfulness, meditation, and manifestation. To watch a video of it, go to limitlessbook.com forward slash resources. Next, I make my brain tea, a combination of gota-cola, ginkgo, lion's mane, MCT oil, and a few other things. Then I'll sit down to spend some time journaling, getting my first thoughts of the day down on the page. My goal in any given day is to accomplish three things for work and three things for me personally, and I set this agenda now. Time permitting, I follow this with about a half hour of reading. I set a goal to read a minimum of one book a week, and making this part of my morning routine keeps me on course. Finally, I drink my brain smoothie a combination of many of the brain foods we discussed earlier in this chapter. No salmon in here, in case you were wondering. Now, admittedly, 
This routine requires a good deal of time. As I mentioned, I can't get to all of it every day, and I can appreciate if it seems like more than you can handle, particularly if you need to get others started on their day. But if your goal in reading this book is upgrading your brain, then some variation on a morning routine of this type is an integral part of the process. Here are the keys. Check in on your dreams before you get out of bed. There is so much gold to mind here, so I strongly recommend you do not skip this step. Get yourself hydrated and oxygenated. Nourish yourself with some of the brain foods mentioned in this chapter. Set a plan for the day. If you do at least these four things, you'll be well on your way to revving up your brain to operate at a high-octane level. Build as many of these things into the start of your day as you can. The most important thing is having a productive morning routine. I can't stress enough how much of an impact getting your day off to the right start has on how the day goes for you overall. Quick start. Create your new morning routine. Remember, it doesn't have to be a lot. Even a simple three-step routine can help jumpstart your morning. What are three things you will always do when you first wake up to set up your day to win? Write them down in your notepad. Before we move on, None of us would be able to live without habits, of course, but consciously working to bring constructive new habits into your life and to replace bad habits with better ones will take your superpowers to a new level. Before you move on to the next chapter, here are a few things to do. Bolster your understanding of the habit loop by thinking about the four components of some of your most common habits, like making your breakfast or taking the dog for a walk. What's the cue, the craving, the response, and the reward for each of these? Spend a few minutes thinking about a habit that you'd love to replace with a more constructive one. Using the FOG behavioral model, what new behavior can you adopt that fits neatly into the model? Walk yourself through the process of starting a valuable new habit using WIN. So now we have, we have a reason, we've found out why, we've created energy in our life, making sure that we're supported. And I love this last chapter because yeah. I've had this in my life where I've, I, you know, I've been really like, I know what I want to do and why I want to do it. And I, I feel like with energy, but what I've taken on is so big right. that I've just become completely overwhelmed and paralyzed. And, and I wake up, I wake up and be like, <gasps> and freeze and then right. not do anything. And then like just, and then feel really bad about myself because it just felt like, I want to be at the top of the mountain mm -hmm. and I have no idea how to get there. So these small, simple steps sound so empowering. It really is the next step because, you know, if you're, think about this, and this is becomes a tool, this framework, the limitless model, if you will, we already went through you and I mindset, and now we're talking about motivation, and then we'll get into the, the methodology and the methods. But motivation is really key. And there's this, again, this myth that people feel like they have to enjoy everything that they're doing and, you know, whether it's working out or anything, and that's a benefit. I mean, find the joy in the things that you, you, you want to do for yourself. But as you mentioned, it's this big mountain and it's, it's going to be very overwhelming. And where do you start? And my, my suggestion for everybody who's listening is once you have a reason to read all the time or meditate each day or do the things you want to learn that language and you have the energy and so you have the fuel to do those things, Break it down. Don't don't try to. You can't learn a language in in a, in a in a day, right? Or become fluent. Break it down into 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 one word, right? Or if you're gonna read something, don't don't worry about reading forty five minutes a day. For somebody who's never read forty five minutes in a month, right? Break it down to one sentence. The idea here is you're gonna ask yourself this question: 
What is the one small step I could take right now to make positive progress in this? Where it's so small, I can't fail. It requires very little energy, very little effort. And uh, again, that's a great feedback loop. I think so many of us have, you know, we've kind of we've lost faith in ourselves because we've broken promises to ourselves mm. so many times. We do this. We make these. We get we get like you know hoorah motivated, <laughs> and we make some ridiculously big promise. Or and New Year's resolution. What a New Year's resolution, and then we break it. And so, like I know for myself, yeah. for the longest time, I would make you know a promise or a commitment, and some voice in the back of my head was like, mm, yeah, like you're yeah. really gonna do that. But this is really cool because this feels like it could yeah. repair that relationship by by setting us up to win. Yeah. And then like learning that, oh wow, I can do this. And and mm-hmm. then I'm sure like you sit down to read a sentence, you're probably not gonna stop at the right. end of the sentence. So it's it's a it's a filling the reservoir, which Ex- is great. Exactly, exactly. You know, we, we addressed that in, in a previous chapter when we're talking about purpose, is part of it is the identity. You know, if we start eroding on our identity that we're not someone who follows through on something by our behaviors, because we, 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 we make a public declaration that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to read this, I'm going to work out, I'm going to do this, make sure I spend, you know, 35 minutes with my kids each day just with them and helping them. And, and we start not being congruent with that. We start losing our own belief that we are people that follow through and we change the way we see ourselves as somebody who procrastinates or something else. One of the best ways to overcome that compromised identity is by behaving in little ways that are nurturing for ourselves. So for for example, there's there are a lot of studies on self-compassion saying that when you have self-compassion, when you are kind to yourself, you're more likely to follow through in the future. As opposed to what a lot of people do, and I'm, I'm guilty of this sometimes as well, where you, you you didn't do that thing you promised and you beat yourself up for it and you're hard on yourself. And what studies and research is saying, those people who do that are less likely to follow through in the future as opposed to the people who are like, hey, um, I'm human. I had a really long day today. A lot of things came up that I didn't expect and, and, I, and I just can't complete it. And you're kind to yourself. And so when you're loving and kind to yourself and you're understanding with yourself, you're more likely to make the positive change the next time. And so, you know, I agree. We we are we are these complicated beings, um, and yet it's very very simple. You know, I'm not saying simple is is easy. Simple could sometimes be difficult. So I'm not I'm not saying it's not going to be hard. But I'm saying to everybody who's listening to this, it's going to be worth it. I love that. You know, really working with something that's simple and effective, even if, like you said, it doesn't mean it's going to be easy. But there's something. In that simplicity, it makes it so elegant and so effective. Mm. So then, you know, with this helping us, reasons, we got our energy, we have these small, simple steps. Let's explore, like, what are the great states this could lead us to? Just flow. Chapter 10, Flow. Why is flow so important to becoming limitless? How do I achieve a flow state? What are the key enemies of flow? I'm sure there have been times when you are so completely caught up in what you were doing that everything else disappeared, and it just felt like the most natural thing you've ever done. Time probably melted away for you during these experiences. People regularly tell me about focusing so deeply on what they were doing that they had no idea that afternoon had become night or they missed multiple meals in the process. This experience is Flow. In his groundbreaking book, Flow, The Psychology of Optimal Experience, psychologist Mihai Csikszentmihalyi describes Flow as the state in which people are so involved in an activity that nothing else seems to matter. The experience itself is so enjoyable that people will do it even at great cost for the sheer sake of doing it. To Csikszentmihalyi, flow is an expression of optimal experience. Dr. Csikszentmihalyi describes flow as having eight characteristics. One, 
absolute concentration. Two, total focus on goals. Three, the sense that time is either speeding up or slowing down. Four, a feeling of reward from the experience. Five, a sense of effortlessness. Six, the experience is challenging, but not overly so. Seven, your actions almost seem to be happening on their own. Eight, you feel comfort with what you are doing. As you've likely experienced yourself, being in a flow state dramatically boosts your productivity. Reports have suggested that flow can make you as much as five times more productive. The people at McKinsey have even imagined a workforce where flow is commonplace. When we ask executives during the peak performance exercise how much more productive they were at their peak than they were on average, for example, we get a range of answers. But the most common at senior levels is an increase of five times. Most report that they and their employees are in the zone at work less than ten percent of the time. Though some claim to experience these feelings as much as fifty percent of it, if employees working in a high IQ, high EQ, and high MQ environment are five times more productive at their peak than they are on average, consider what even a relatively modest twenty percentage point increase in peak. Time would yield in overall workplace productivity. It would almost double. Winning with flow. Patrick, a member of our community, struggled constantly with ADHD and and an inability to focus. It had been a problem for him throughout his life. He was easily distracted, or in the reverse, he was hyper focused. To the detriment of everything and everyone around him, he even experienced this during his Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu tournaments. He had difficulty deciding which technique to use with opponents, and felt as though he was trying to use every move at once, even though many of them weren't appropriate for the situation. His inability to focus affected his work, his family life, and his favorite sport. And he felt a high level of stress nearly all the time. Then one day he started listening to episodes of my podcast, where he heard about the stages of flow, which we will get into in a moment, as well as several high-performance habits. Patrick applied what he learned to his everyday life and saw immediate results. He was finally able to identify and understand what he was struggling with, and he immersed himself in his pursuits more fully than ever before. Finding flow was the key. In his next tournament, Patrick was able to release his intense focus and take his mind off the problems that had distracted him in the past. He found his flow quickly. And felt like he was in the matrix. He could see his opponent's moves coming before they happened. Even better, he was able to find flow in other areas of his life too. The better he did in his martial arts tournaments, the better he did in life. Patrick finally felt a release from the stress that dogged him endlessly. At last, believing that he could let go and enjoy his life more. The four stages of flow. The flow state has a predictable arc to it. Our podcast guest Stephen Kotler, founder of the Flow Research Collective and the author of The Rise of Superman, has identified the four stages of flow. Stage one. Struggle. This is where you're digging deep to assess whatever it is you need to reach the flow state. It could be a workout regimen, 
extensive research, an intense bout of brainstorming, or anything else you are focusing on. Warning, this often feels like a struggle and, in fact, the opposite of flow. Stage 2. Relaxation This is the break you take before fully diving into flow. It is an essential step as it keeps you from burning out over the struggle you've been through. This break, a walk, some breathing, anything that helps you relax, is decidedly different from a distraction such as moving on to another task or checking sports scores. Stage 3. Flow. This is the stage that Kotler describes as the Superman experience. This is that flow state that hopefully you've experienced at various points in your life, where you're doing your absolute best work and it almost seems to be happening automatically. Stage 4. Consolidation. In this final stage, you pull together everything you accomplished during the flow stage. Often, this is accompanied by feeling somewhat let down. All kinds of positive chemicals have been running through your brain while you're in flow, and now that high is ending, but another cycle can be waiting just around the corner. Kotler believes that finding flow is the source code of motivation. When you find flow, you get maybe the most potent dose of reward chemistry your brain can give you, which is the reason he believes flow is the most addictive state on earth. Once we start to feel flow in an experience, we are motivated to do what it takes to get more. But it's a circular relationship. If you have motivation to accomplish a task, but you have no flow, you will eventually burn out. Motivation and flow need to work together, and they must be coupled with a solid recovery protocol like good sleep and nutrition. Quick start. Have you ever experienced the flow state? Where were you? What were you doing? How did it feel? What did you achieve at the end of it? Visualize that state. Even if you can't visualize, imagine that you can. Finding flow. If you're going to become limitless, you're going to want to get yourself into a flow state as often as possible. So how do you do this? I can offer five ways. Number one, eliminate distractions. Earlier, we talked about the importance of keeping distractions to a minimum. If you're going to find yourself in a flow state, eliminating distractions is absolutely essential. It can take you up to 20 minutes to reconnect with what you're doing after you've been distracted from doing it. How are you ever going to get into the flow if you're constantly rebooting because a text message drew away your attention? or because you just wanted to make a quick check of social media before you got back to work. So, put everything else aside and concentrate completely on what you're doing. Number two, give yourself enough time. Make sure you have a block of time set aside to get into flow. It's commonly believed that when conditions are right, it takes about 15 minutes to achieve a flow state and that you don't really hit your peak for closer to 45 minutes. Clearing out only half an hour or so isn't going to allow you to accomplish much. Plan to set aside at least 90 minutes and ideally a full two hours. Number three, do something you love. When we think of flow, we tend to think of people achieving at extremely high levels the athlete perfecting her game, the musician crafting the ideal guitar solo, the writer quickly putting words down on the page as though taking dictation rather than creating. What's common among all these people is that they are doing something that matters to them a great deal. They wouldn't be satisfied with only being moderately competent as they aren't performing a task with which they have a casual relationship. 
They're doing things they love. I've been talking to people about flow for decades. I don't think I've ever heard someone mention being in a flow state about something they were doing only to pass the time. It's like the difference between driving an old junker and driving a brand new Aston Martin. Both might get you to the office, but you're only likely to really get into the driving experience with one of them. If you find certain annoyances in something you're doing, or if you find it to be dull much of the time, these negatives are going to prevent you from truly getting into the flow. Number four, have clear goals. One of the most efficient flow preventers is lack of clarity. If you don't know what you're trying to accomplish, it's likely that casting around for a mission will keep flow at bay. A novelist friend of mine separates the plotting of his novels from the actual writing for precisely this reason. For him, plotting is an arduous task, with lots of fits and starts, whereas he takes tremendous pleasure in choosing the right words for his stories and making his characters come alive. By plotting ahead of time, he knows exactly what he's going to write about on any given day and regularly finds himself disappearing into the flow of his work for hours at a stretch. So, once you've carved out the time, give yourself a clear purpose for how you are going to use that time. If you set yourself on a mission at the outset, and it is something you're excited about achieving, you're likely to find yourself deeply immersed in that mission. Number five, challenge yourself a little. When I talk to people about flow, I consistently hear that they are most likely to achieve flow when they're doing something that is a little bit of a challenge. In other words, they're outside of their comfort zone but not way outside of it. The logic here is clear. If you do something that you can do with both hands tied behind your back, you're probably going to be bored fairly quickly and boredom and flow are incompatible. On the other hand, but if you do something that you love, that also has a moderate level of challenge to it, trying to hit a baseball to just one part of the field, trying to form a new tuning on your guitar, or writing from the perspective of a new character, for example. This level of challenge is likely to keep the task exciting for you and therefore engage you deeply. Conquering the Enemies of Flow Training yourself to achieve flow regularly and even in multiple sessions in the same day will have you performing like a superhero. But we all know that superheroes are constantly challenged by supervillains, and a number of them are lurking around every corner, stalking your flow, and trying to extinguish it. Here are four supervillains you need to keep at bay if your flow is going to thrive. 